All right, everybody, let's go ahead and get back to our seats. And we will begin here shortly. We are in the book of 2 Corinthians, so you can take your Bibles and get ready in chapter number 3 of 2 Corinthians. As you're getting back to your seats, as you're getting your Bibles open to that spot, let me give you a quick announcement. This morning I got a text message from Chris Weaver, our missionary in Malawi, and uh, the situation there is um, becoming more strict in the government for, you know, the whole COVID thing, and they, they have passed, they actually made it illegal to have more than 10 people gather together at a time, and specifically stated, including churches. And uh, there are fines being ushered out that if, if you're caught without a mask in Malawi, um, there's fines being ushered out that he said would be about equal to one-third, I think he said monthly salary, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, it's, a, it's an impoverished country, and, uh, you know, let's, let's just be praying for Chris and for the ministry in Malawi. Um, these are... These are interesting times. So, you know, glory be. Uh, what a challenge this life has presented to us this year, hasn't it been? I mean, if the world's going to keep going on the path that it's on, it's going to send us all to glory quick. I don't know about you, but, I mean, regardless of the circumstances, I want to go out in a blaze of glory. No guts, no glory. We use that word glory a lot, don't we? Um, so we're going to talk about the glory of God today. And rather than just wondering whether we really understand what the word means, what we really need to understand is what God says it means. And it actually applies in a lot of ways, maybe more than you have considered in the past. And so we're going to start off today with a definition of the word glory. I, I chose to phrase it this way, uh, the majesty of outward appearance. The majesty of outward appearance. That's, that's really what glory is. Um, it, it is sometimes used with synonyms like instead of glory, it might be splendor or magnificence. Sometimes it's translated as fame or brightness or radiance or shining, and you kind of just get the idea, the splendor, the majesty, the magnificence, the radiant, the shining out. So I just said the, the majesty of outward appearance. It's, it's any manifestation of God's presence. Anything at all that manifests forth the magnificent presence of God is displaying God's glory. That's, that's what it is. And so we saw last week, and we've seen times before, let me just remind you of a very obvious place, Psalm 19, and verse number one says, the heavens declare, now that we understand the meaning, the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So God's glory is manifested through his handiwork. It's displayed in nature. It's displayed in the heavens. It manifests his very presence. In fact, it says the heavens, because in the Bible there's three heavens. And actually in this case, in Psalm 19, it's talking about the firmament. The firmament would be the second heaven. That's outer space where the sun, moon, and stars are. Okay? 
We can see God's glory certainly in the third heaven. The third heaven is, well, that's the place God hangs out. And we see that in a lot of different places. I just grabbed for you Ezekiel chapter 10, first four verses. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, and as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. So we're in the very throne room of God. He spake unto the man clothed with linen and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thine hand with the coals of fire from between the cherubims, and scatter them over the city. And he went in my sight. Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. Now this is, for those of you Bible students, this is the heavenly tabernacle. This is the heavenly temple of God, of which the earthly tabernacle or temple of God is merely a shadow. Okay, the Bible in the book of Hebrews makes that very clear. And so we see such reflection also, though, so that would be the third heaven. We see it also in the first heaven, right? So that would be the earth and the earth's atmosphere and the, the place where we live. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, talking about that earthly temple, as it's being rebuilt after the captivity, it says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory. After they rebuilt the temple, after Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed during captivity. I will fill this house on the earth, right, so the first heaven, with, with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. And ultimately, it's really talking prophetically to the ultimate millennial setting up of, of the ultimate kingdom and temple where Jesus Christ will reign. And we see that prophetically in Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 14. Again, the earth, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And, and just for a second, just realize that God said, as the waters cover, not the earth, because there's places where there's waters and there's places where there's dry land. No, as the waters cover the sea completely and totally without missing a spot. The waters cover the sea by definition, right? That's how the glory of the Lord is going to cover this earth. In fact, the display of God's presence, it's so important to him that, well, he's jealous of it. In fact, that's one of the names of God given in the Bible. God is, his name is Jealous, and he's jealous about his glory. So in Isaiah 48, 11, he says, I'll not give my glory unto another. I'm not sharing my glory with anybody. There's nobody who's likened unto me. I can't share my glory with anybody else. So we, as God's sons, right, we have the overarching theme of our existence should be the, the one thing that should define the theme of our being and our existence as sons of God is to manifest the glory of our Heavenly Father. That's, that's who we are. That's why we're here. In fact, if you Look at churches' websites. Frequently, churches will put together a mission statement or a purpose statement or something like that. And, and frequently, the way that they'll describe their purpose as a church is by starting out by saying, we desire to glorify God by 
doing several different things, and they might talk about, you know, the different aspects of ministry that they like to focus on in their church, but whatever it is they're doing in their church, they, they understand that it falls under the general theme of glorifying God. That's, that's why we exist. It's our very reason for being. So God's glory is really important, and, and we say that we want to glorify God in our lives, but how? How do we do it? Well, we're studying the book of 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians' theme is all about ministry. We've seen that, and in fact, this word glory uh, in this book of 2 Corinthians appears 30 different times, a form of the word glory, glorious, that sort of thing. 30 times in 21 verses does a form of the word glory appear in this book, but interestingly, in these five or six verses that we're going to look at today, of those 30 references... 11 of them in this passage right here, 11 of them. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see, and this is the title of the message, that ministry manifests glory. We shouldn't be surprised to see that today. Now, if you were with us last week when we started chapter 3, uh, we described how the theme of each chapter has its own unique aspect of ministry, and the theme being addressed in chapter 3 is the idea of criticism, and last week, we saw that the answer to criticism against ourselves, right, is just to continue on in our personal ministry and bearing fruit that remains. So today is continuing that thought, right? And our personal ministry involvement, it more than just answers the critics. It actually manifests the very glory of God, whether they recognize it or not. And when it does that, again, going back to last week, do you really care what critics say? If we know that we're doing this very thing, you shouldn't anyway. All right, so let's jump in. We left off last time at verse 6. We're going to start at verse 7, and we're going to go down to verse number 11. 2 Corinthians 3, follow along. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious much more that which remaineth is glorious. So we're going to look at this comparison and contrast in, in some detail here in a minute. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look into this passage, Lord, we desire to understand your glory. We, we want to see it. And as we'll see, the level to which we can see it, well, it's going to be based on the level to which we can interact with you personally through your word. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your holy word, reveal it to our hearts and our souls, enlighten our eyes, show us your glory. Help us to see you. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to understand who you made us to be and why you made us such. Because it's all about your glory. And that really matters. So I pray that you'd use this and I pray you'd touch lives today in Christ's name. Amen. 
So we're going to see this in two basic steps. Like I said, it's a comparison and contrast. So the first point is going to be discussing the Old Testament ministry, and we'll call that God's standard. The Old Testament ministry, God's standard. So this comparison and contrast that's presented to us here begins by showing us that really, again, as we said, like in Psalm 19, anything that reveals a little more to us about God, well, that's, it's glorious. And in this case, there's a less glorious option, and there's a more glorious option, and we'll get to that in a minute. But even the less glorious option, the Bible is clear, it's still glorious. It's still glorious. So verse number 7, where we began, references a story from the Old Testament, where Moses came down off Mount Sinai, and his face did shine as the sun, and This is a time in this story, and we're going to look at it here in just a second, is when God is giving to Moses the two tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. But this is where God is giving it to Moses for the second time. So you Bible students will remember that God gave it to Moses the first time. But when he was coming down off the mountain, we had Aaron and the children of Israel that made the golden calf and all of the idolatry. And Moses was so mad, he threw down the tablets and broke them. And so then he goes back up the mountain, and God gives him the tablets the second time. And that's what we're about to see right here. The story is from Exodus chapter 34. So you can follow along. I'm going to read several verses from verse 27 down to verse 35. Exodus 34. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words. For after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Let me just stop there for just a second, because if you were to go back and see when God gave them the first time, when God gave them the first time, you'll notice that God wrote the Ten Commandments. But Moses broke all Ten Commandments, as we frequently do. And so God's like, all right, I'll give them to you again, but you write them this time. You write them this time. Just a little insight into how God deals with us. Pick it up in verse 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand. When he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And so Moses came down. He wanted to talk with everybody. They were scared and ran. And so Moses said, hey, y'all come on back. And the only ones that came back were Aaron and the leaders, right? The leaders of the congregation, the rulers of the congregation, they came back. And then in verse 32, and afterward, well, then all the children of Israel came nigh. Eventually they all showed up, showing that all people need good leadership. And he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him. In Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, I don't know if you noticed it or not, or if you bothered to study it or not, but here we have the original face covering. (laughs) 
Moses wore the face covering to protect people who were fearful. Let that sink in for a second. Moses wore it because the other people couldn't handle it. So Moses' face shining is the reflection of God's glory. It's just the reflection of God's glory. Like the moon reflects the light of the sun. Doesn't have any light of its own. Moses doesn't have any glory of his own. He's reflecting the glory of the Lord. Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 17, we have the story where it says, After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, bringeth into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. It's a picture of the coming ultimate day of the Lord and setting up his millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ returns in glory. Right? His face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as the light. So this reflection, this, this enlightened countenance of Moses, it's, it's the visible remnant of Moses having spent time directly in the presence of God. That's what it is. And he was spending time directly in the presence of God. And what was he doing? He was receiving God's word. So David says in Psalm 119, 135, Make thy face to shine upon thy servant and teach me thy statutes. Because God's glory is manifested in the ministry of his word. It's glorious. But even at that, Moses, you need to know, only saw God indirectly, right? So if you went back to Exodus, but you back up to the previous chapter, just leading up to chapter 34, so the end of chapter 33 I want you to be reminded of this in Exodus 33, 18 to 23. And he said, Moses said to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. It's a good request. And he, God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before thee. You can handle that. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. You can handle that. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then he said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass when my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now just think about this scenario for a second because all this is the setup to what Paul is referencing to the Corinthians. Okay? We're going somewhere with this. This reflected glory of God off of the face of Moses. This presentation of God's presence reflected off of Moses was more than the Israelites could bear. 
when they saw the reflection, not of God's face, but of the backside off of Moses' face, it was too much for them to bear. So up to this point, dispensationally, historically, up until the point of Moses, we, we have different ways that God was interacting with man. Back in Adam in the garden, he dealt with man through his conscience. And coming up through Abraham and Noah, we, we saw that God spoke to man in various miraculous ways and directly and in visions and things like that. And yet, even though there was verbal interaction with God back in those days, it was subjective, right? I mean, it they would only remember what they remembered. They heard what they heard, but, but it was subjective. But when Moses shows up and when he receives the law and when he receives the Ten Commandments, it's the first time God gives a written standard of his law, of his will, of his very being. And so the written word of God is, is important because it's clear, because it's concise, because it's objective. You don't have to rely on what experience you had. You don't have to remember exactly what God said to you that day and then disappeared later. We have it written down. You can go away from it. You can come back to it. It's still written. So it's better. In fact, it's so important that there were only three things that God commanded to be placed inside the Ark of the Covenant the piece of furniture in the temple that represented the very presence of God, the place upon which God would descend and meet with the high priest once a year. The Ark of the Covenant contained the tables of stone of the Ten Commandments. That's how important it was. So Moses' ministry was taking God's word and delivering it to the people. That was his ministry. And that was glorious. That act of taking God's word and delivering it to the people, it was the splendid manifestation of God's very presence in a way that the people had never recognized before. In other words, the very word of God becomes the visible appearance of an otherwise invisible God. And therefore, it's glorious. And to devalue it, friends, is dangerous. It's dangerous. It's glorious because the Word of God, well, it's, it's God's very soul. It's, it's the mind of God. It reveals the will of God. It displays and describes the emotions. It tells you what God feels and thinks about things. It's his very soul. And that's precious to him. So much so that when you really come in contact with it, when you really interact with the word of God, you're going to be changed. You can't be the same. Something happens to you. And while all of that is true, it is still called a ministry of death. That's what it's called. 
in verse number seven. If this ministration, sometimes we would use the word administration, ministry, that's what it is. This ministry of death. So Moses interacted with God, and the result to him personally was displaying God's glory on his very face. But the message that he brought, well, that brought death to the people. And there's a reason why. So if you go back into the story, and I have this in your notes, when the law was given, 3,000 men died. So now we've got to go back to when the law was given the very first time. Moses gets the law. He comes down. They're involved. Aaron, they build the golden calf. There's the idolatry and all of these things. Now we're going back to Exodus 32. We're going backwards a little bit in Exodus. And let me just remind you of that starting in verse 26. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? There's a good question. Who's on the Lord's side? In fact, you ought to you ought just write that down in the margin of your bulletin. You ought to... Really pray over that. Who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. That day that the law was given. Why? Well, because the purpose of the law is to expose sin. That's the purpose of the law. We see that in many places, so we'll jump in at Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And since we know that Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, well, the law brings the knowledge and understanding that the things you've been doing all along are now actually considered sin, and well, sin brings forth death. So the law itself is glorious and interacting with it is glorious and ministering it to others is glorious, but the result is, well, it's a ministry of death, actually. It reveals God's presence. It reveals his glory. It reveals his standard, holy perfection. By the way, the immediate reaction to anyone who sees God in his glory, what is it? They fall down as dead. The very end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 1, we have the Apostle John, he interacts and he sees this vision of the glorified Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.14, it describes him, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And John saw it. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, you know, we like singing the songs. You know, I can only imagine what that day will be like. You know, will I jump for joy and sing and dance and shout? Um, no. 
you're going to fall at his feet as dead. But the good news is he laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. Get up. Get up. That's the reaction of standing before the glory of the Lord. And so it's a ministration of death because it's a ministration or ministry of condemnation. That's the other thing that it's called in verse 9. The ministry of death is also called a ministry of condemnation. Proverbs 12 verse 2 says, A good man obtaineth favor of the Lord, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn. Let me ask you a question. You know who a good man is? Luke 18, 19 will tell you. There isn't any. There's only one. And that's God. You, you could say it this way. It's a weird way to remember it. God plus zero equals good. <laughs> that's the only way to do it. Only God is good. So who's a man of wicked devices? Well, you are. I am too. We all are. We're all of wicked devices. You say, really? I thought all men were basically good. Well, only in Hallmark films. I mean, not... <laughs> like, watch the, y'all watching the news? Y'all live through 2020? All men are basically good? <laughs> Let's see what the Lord says. Romans 5.13. For unto the law, sin was in the world. Look, before the law showed up, it's not that there wasn't sin. Everybody, people were sinning before. They just didn't understand it. Until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there's no law. Go down to Romans 7, 7. For what should we say then? Is the law sin? Well, man, I mean, if that's the case, the Romans thought, is the law sin? Well, God forbid. Of course not. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, like we saw in chapter 3. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. I've been coveting all along. I didn't know that it was sin. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, the law, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Paul says in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law, notice, is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if that list didn't hit everybody, and if there be any other thing, That is contrary to sound doctrine. Y'all work on that? It's coming, y'all. Let's get right to the end. Are you sure you're saved? There's coming a day when that's going to be the case, and it might be today. It might be today. And if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. So John can say in 1 John 3, 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. 
The law brought condemnation. It's a ministry of condemnation. The law reveals God's holy, righteous standard to which no man can measure up. No man can measure up to it, and, well, that's why we need a Savior, right? Eyes over here. Hey. <laughs> I tell my wife that all the time. <laughs> Just kidding. It's... It's awful being married to a preacher. It's just awful. <laughs> Didn't say amen. Thank you. <laughs> the law reveals God's standard. God's standard is perfection. You don't measure up. So you need a Savior, and that's what Galatians 3 is all about, 24 and 25. Wherefore, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. So the purpose of the law was not to, not to cleanse you of your sins. The purpose of the law was to point out your sins. It brought condemnation, it brought guilt, and it brought death. So that you could know that you needed to get saved, right? But once, once we can be justified by faith, well, we're, we don't need the schoolmaster anymore. We found the answer, right? And so that means that the Old Testament ministry of the law was, this is letter C, it was a temporary ministry. It was a temporary ministry. The Old Testament dispensation of law, although glorious in its own way, reflecting and manifesting the very glory of God, is done away in Christ. So all of the ceremonial law, all of the washings and the clean and unclean foods and the Sabbaths and the sacrifices and the killing of animals... They're not needed anymore. Why don't we do those things anymore? Well, because they're pictures and types which are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why. So God's word is, oh, and by the way, always will be glorious on its own. But the purpose of God giving it is really the second point of our study today, number two, the New Testament ministry, and that's the ministry of God's sons. New Testament ministry, the ministry of God's sons. So without question, in this comparison contrast that we have, I mean, the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. Can we say that? I mean, people that don't even read the Bible, people that don't even study the Scriptures, people who don't really connect with the Lord in any way and don't really have a background and understanding, if they know anything at all about the Old Testament and the New Testament, even a cursory glance of the Old Testament and the New Testament, they recognize the new is better than the old. They know that. Uh, people generalize and make statements, for example, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment. The God of the New Testament is a God of forgiveness. And while technically that's not true, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, there's judgment and forgiveness on both sides without question. The general observation is understood. The general observation is understood. Okay? And so we're going to see the fulfillment as it comes through in this New Testament scenario. And I want to start by pointing out the New Testament fulfillment is in the man Jesus Christ. It's in his very person. So we see this glory manifested through the very person and presence of the man, Jesus Christ. John 1.14, and the Word, capital W, that's Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, 
The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Notice, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews says it this way in chapter 1 and verse 3. Who, referring to Jesus, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. So the fulfillment is in the man, Jesus Christ. It's also in the miracles of Jesus Christ. We see this in several places. John chapter 2, we have the very first miracle that Jesus did in verse 11. The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. What happened? And manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. Um, we see it over and over again in John chapter 11. It's that story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? This was the, he said, hey, let's go get Lazarus. And she's like, he's been four days, he stinketh. You know? He said, didn't I tell you? And so you get to verse 43. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So these miraculous supernatural deeds, they manifest God's glory. Why? Because they are indeed supernatural. They're not just natural deeds. It wasn't just a sleight of hand trick. This was above nature. This is glorious. This is God doing it. So the fulfillment's in the man, Jesus Christ, and the miracles of Jesus Christ, and in the ministry of Jesus Christ, without question. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7, Thou madest him, Jesus, a little lower than the angels, and crownedest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. This is going to be his ministry. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, or in that he's put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, may, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad he did that for you? That ministry, dying on the cross in your place, that was glorious. Because the manifested glory of God is shown when we, as his sons, are obedient in full surrender to his will. And so in this case now, make, going back to 2 Corinthians 3 and contrasting what we saw in the Old Testament ministry of Moses and in the New Testament, yes, through the ministry of Christ, but we are also his sons by faith in Jesus Christ. We're first going to see that it's called the ministry of the Spirit. And I want you to notice in verse number 8 where it talks about the ministration of the Spirit that it is a small s spirit. Not a capital S spirit. And your King James Bible is careful to differentiate when it's talking about the Holy Spirit of God using the capital. And when it's talking about the human spirit of man, it uses the small s. And you might think this should be talking about the Holy Spirit of God, but it's not. It's the same idea that we talked about last week in verse number 6. Okay, so he's continuing on. He's talking about the fact that a believer in Jesus Christ... Certainly the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of your body at the moment of your salvation, yes. But then at that moment, your life becomes 
a living representation. And so last week we saw that you're the only Bible some people may ever read. You're a living epistle. And so in this case, this living representation of the life of God inside of you in your human spirit, that's your ministration, right? So when the law was given, 3,000 men died. But when the Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 men were saved. We see that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. When that Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost and people got saved for the first time with the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God and they were born again, it's just interesting, isn't it, that the same exact number of people is listed. You see, the ministry of the Spirit, small s, is it's a very personal interaction with God. And while no man in this life can actually see God, face-to-face, right, and live, God still shows forth His glory, but He does it in a manner that is veiled. In a manner that is veiled. Now, the veil of God's glory through us, well, that's our body. Our body is the veil. So John can say in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We are actually the glorious, perfect, forgiven, holy, righteous sons of God right now. It doesn't look like it. I get it. It doth not yet appear. It will. But we know that when He shall appear... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the rapture of the church. When he shall appear, we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we're going to be glorified. You see, this glory that's the ministry of the Spirit, the glory of God manifest in and through you, like Moses in Exodus 34, is veiled somewhat. And I think maybe, maybe, It's fair to say it's because the truth is the world couldn't handle it if it wasn't. I don't want to get weird with you on this, but I'm going to tell you something. Mankind in our lost state, we are idolaters at heart. If a lost man could see you, Christian, for who you really are on the inside today, they'd fall down and worship you. But that's not the goal, right? We're veiled for now. We'll see when we get into chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. Notice this is good. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have the same treasure, but it's in earthen vessels. God fashioned Adam out of the dust of the earth. Our bodies are fashioned from the dust of the earth. We have this godly, glorious treasure, 
veiled in earthen vessels. And so anything that we do that's of any value, well, the excellency of the power, everybody knows, well, that's of God. That ain't, that's not us, right? So we're similar to Jesus Christ in that effect because while Jesus had his earthly ministry, right, his flesh was also a veil of the full glory of God. But at the crucifixion, at that moment when Jesus' flesh was torn, so that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And anybody, not just Aaron, not just the high priest that could go in past the veil into the Ark of the Covenant, into the Holy of Holies, into the only place that represented the very presence of God, that heavy curtain, that veil that hung was torn not from bottom to top, from top to bottom, because God did it. The ark is the presence of God, so now we as believers, we can go directly into the presence of God, because we are in Christ. That's the priesthood of the believer. And so as a result of that, we have letter B, a ministry of righteousness, a ministry of righteousness. And a ministry of righteousness, y'all, is the goal of what the Old Testament law was all about. So we'll see next week, the end of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, well, I can't wait till we get to that one, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So let's move on through our notes. This won't take that long, but in this ministry of righteousness, you need to understand some things about righteousness. So a very obvious statement. You probably may have already guessed the blanks, okay? Christ's righteousness is greater than your righteousness. Christ's righteousness would represent the New Testament righteousness. Your righteousness would represent the Old Testament version of righteousness. Christ's righteousness through the New Testament economy is by faith. The Old Testament righteousness was by the law. And this is all laid out for you clearly in Romans chapter 10. We're going to read 10 verses, but it's going to make perfect sense. Romans 10. Paul says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So you know the context. He's talking about the nation of Israel during the time of the church age, because this is a church age epistle written to Rome. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is they might be saved. For I bear them record. They have a zeal for, of God, but not according to knowledge. They're very religious. They're very faithful. They're just wrong. And people can be religious, and people can be zealots, and they can be wrong. For they, being ignorant, notice, of God's righteousness. God has a system of righteousness they don't even understand. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. All you got to do is believe. Amen? For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. So the Old Testament ministry and the Old Testament righteousness was man's righteousness. It's do the best you can to measure up to the law. 
the man that doeth those things, it says. But, contrast verse 6, the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Don't say in your heart that you've got to go do something. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ again from the dead. Okay, well, what saith it? Well, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And here's the message. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So whether it's the Jews of the Old Testament, during the time of the church age, the way that you get in on Christ's righteousness and not your own is by faith. You confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And when you do that, he places his righteousness on you. And it's all done by faith. Let me just ask you a question. You're here today. Nice folks. Came to church. It's a beautiful day. Are you sure you're saved? Do you know, absolutely, that God forbid if something terrible happened and you didn't make it till tonight, that you'd have your home in heaven? I mean, this is no joke. This is no, this is no, it's no joking matter. There is no more important thing. In fact, if you're not sure that you have done the things that are described in Romans 10, 9, and 10, I think I can be bold enough to say, I think God brought you here today for this reason. So that you could be sure. I mean, there's a couple things I want to say to finish the sermon, but really there's nothing more important than this, right? I mean, you need to know that you have done what God has asked. It doesn't, it's not enough to be zealous and wrong. It's not enough to be sincere and sincerely wrong. You have to do it God's way. And his way is very simple. You don't have to do anything but surrender and believe what he did. When you do that, well then, you're right as rain. <laughs> you're right as Jesus Christ. That's how right you are. So like Jesus Christ, we now, as sons of God, can live a righteous life. We can. Displaying the glory of God as long as we walk in the Spirit. And then it becomes a living, breathing relationship and a manifestation of the glory of God in our veiled flesh. So Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And doctrinally, literally, he's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ was God and came to earth in the form of a man in human flesh. He's talking about Jesus Christ. But we're in Christ. And there's a practical application that can be made. There can be a mystery of godliness in you as long as God is manifested in your flesh. And maybe it's a mystery because people don't understand it, but maybe it's a mystery because so few Christians actually live like that. Maybe. 
I don't know. But the purpose remains. We're made new. We are new creatures. And we're to walk in the Spirit, and we're to display God's glorious presence to a sick and a dying world. And all the more as we see the day approaching. All the more. So 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says that you would walk worthy of God. Live your life like you know you should. Who hath called you unto his kingdom and unto his glory. And so as such, this radical transformation into something entirely new, well, it's not a temporary ministry. It's a permanent ministry, right? It's permanent. It's never going away. That's your eternal security, Christian. That's the fact that your new life in Christ has made you a new creature, right? You're a new creature in Jesus Christ. You've been born again into a new spiritual family, and that act cannot be undone. That glory, that, that good work that he's already begun in you can never be undone. It can never be undone. This is the glory not that's done away. This is the glory that remains. This is the glory that excels and exceeds beyond the level of the old. And this is our ministry. This is our life in Christ. This is our walk with him. This is our ministry of the word to others. This is our declaration of the glorious truth of God's word. It's our living it out in holiness. It's our surrender to his will and everything he asks. Ministry manifests glory and answers every critic to God's satisfaction anyway. So your glorious obedience to God's word is God's reflection in and through you. Don't compromise the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures in your life, friends, in any activity you do. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Until that day comes, when he calls your name and says, Come up hither, and you meet him together in that moment in the twinkling of an eye in an instant at the last trump, and the trump shall sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised first, and we that are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet him in the clouds in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That day in 1 Corinthians 15 describes the glorious body that you're going to receive. Where it says, all flesh is not same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another of flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. We now have the glory of the terrestrial somewhat veiled. We're going to have a glorified body, which is the glory of the celestial. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Somebody say amen. I can't wait for that day. And when that day comes, if you've performed your ministry well and you've given him the glory he deserves while you've walked on this earth, when he calls you up, you're going to stand before him at a time of judgment. And when he does, he will mete out to you in your faithful ministry glorious rewards. There are crowns to be earned. 
So 1 Peter 5 says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the ministry of the word of God and giving it to other people. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not of constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. It remains forever. Because it's God's glory. And anything that's of God lasts forever. Heaven and earth shall pass away. My words will never pass away. Your soul that's been redeemed, it'll never pass away. It remains forever. And you can manifest it now and now more than ever because people need it now more than they've ever needed it before. We're done. I've got two challenges for you depending on how you, how you find yourself today. If you're not sure you're saved, friend, can I encourage you, please surrender your heart and your life to Jesus. Please do it today. Please don't put it off. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. Surrender your heart to him. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. I know most of you have already done that. I know most of you know that you know, and praise God for that. And you come here to be taught and to be encouraged and be sharpened. And I pray that that's taken place today, and I pray that God has worked in your heart to consider what kind of a manifestation of God is being shown through you. You see, if you've got known sin in your life, people aren't seeing the glory of God. They're seeing your carnality. But if you're dying to yourself and you're saying yes to the word of God in your life and living as a new creature in Christ, man, then your life is manifesting the very glory and presence of God Almighty. And don't you want to do that right down to the finish line, which, by the way, is scheduled really soon? I think, I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, let's pray. We're done. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, and thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the example that we have in Moses and how we can consider what that means to us today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that first and foremost for the Christian believers, I want to pray, God, that we would consider ourselves, that we wouldn't just say amen because that was a good word, but that we would see ourselves in the mirror of your word as we'll see next week. We see our face in a glass. And we behold your glory in your, in your word, but what do we see about us? And Lord, I want to pray for the brothers and sisters who might honestly before you say, well, there's some, there's some problems. And I need to repent of those things. I've been playing games for far too long. I've been making excuses for far too long. When people look at me, they don't see Jesus. They just see me. And I want that to stop. So I pray for my brothers and sisters that might be in that category, that they would just leave it on the altar before you and be done with it. And Lord, there's others who really do all they know to do to surrender, all that they understand about them to all that they understand about you. And Lord, I pray that you continue to give them strength and courage and light to walk forward because the world needs it. But Lord, before we're done praying, I, I got to just cry out to you and ask, if anybody's in this room and they're not sure that they've got a home in heaven if their life were to end today, Lord, if they would just cry out to you and they would ask for forgiveness, it's really simple. They could, they could just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. I know I'm far from you and I know I deserve death. I know I deserve hell. 
but I don't want it. And thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for paying the penalty for me. Thank you for tasting death for every man, including me. Thank you that whosoever calls upon your name can be saved, and that includes me. Lord, I call upon you right now. I, I, I believe, Lord, that God raised you from the dead, and I confess you to be my Lord and my Savior today. Please come forgive me and give me the gift of new life. Nothing's more important. It's the reason why they're here today. I'm sure of it. So I pray that they would make that decision themselves. There's no magic words. They just need to surrender. You hear a sincere heart. Lord, we love you. And these days are dark. And our light may not be bright, but the darker the night, the brighter the light. And I pray that you just cause this light to shine forth and reach many new people. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.